This is an ABC podcast. Hello, Lisa Leong with you. Greg Fisher came from the type of nice Jewish family that always had enough chicken soup for a few extra guests at Friday night dinner. He was raised in a warm, loving, community-oriented bubble and he looked forward to recreating that environment for his own kids. As he started his family, he tried to ignore something he had always known about himself. His business influence grew and grew and grew into the gay and lesbian property development company, The Satellite Group. There was a time when he was known as an A-lister, a property magnate and a media darling. But when the bubble burst in a dramatic way, Greg got a new label, inmate number 378121. Hi, Greg. Hello. Describe a typical childhood Shabbat dinner at your place. Who was there? Typical Friday night dinner at uh, my parents' place in Wollara. I had my parents, my sister as the core, and that was an absolute given. Even though my father would work at uh, different places, come Friday night, we were there as a group. It also had my grandparents, my nana and grandpa, my mother's parents, and my dad's mum, grandma. What are some of the things that you would eat? Oh, it was traditional food. Um, If you think of a Sunday roast and transfer it to Friday, that's pretty much what it is. Uh, Add a bit of chicken soup for the Jewish flavour and you're done. So it was started off with your your, uh, chicken soup with noodles or lakshan as we call it, followed by um, chicken, vegetables or salad uh, and, of course, the potato. Uh, Dessert would always be something like uh, either an apple crumble with gelato. It had to be non-dairy because you don't have milk after meat. And then you would have a cup of tea and some dark chocolate because, again, it would would be non-dairy. So that would be our typical Friday night. It included a little little bit of prayers beforehand, grace before meals, grace after meals, a little bit of singing sometimes, a lot of storytelling and a lot of, like, how was your week and what was going on. It was just that time to regroup. Fantastic. What else would you be discussing? Uh, As we got older, I became a lot more politically aware and love my politics uh, and my mother is very much the same. So the discussions across the table would be uh, quite lively and exciting, Um, sometimes uh, a little bit too animated, but always a lot of fun. What sense do you get looking back at your childhood? Uh, A great sense of joy. I'm very, I, I really consider that I had a privileged upbringing, not because we had lots of money. We didn't. We were a very, very middle-class family financially. But I was so privileged uh, to have the love and warmth of a family unit around you as you get older and you reflect. That becomes more and more uh, something which real, makes you realise what a privileged upbringing you had. What kind of work did your parents do in the community in particular? Well, in the community, there was barely a Jewish organisation that my parents didn't touch. So uh, Dad was, at one stage, the treasurer of the Great Synagogue, while Mum was the CEO of the Board of Jewish Education, and then uh, Mum was president of Maccabi Swimming Club uh, because I was a swimmer. And uh, then, you know, But all of my family, my uncles and so on, and aunties, they were, all had different positions in the community, um, and not just the Jewish community. My mother started something called the Welfare Set, which was uh, to welcome new immigrants to the country and for us as children to be taken like, like on picnics uh, to welcome children of other 
families who'd come from overseas and make them feel welcome even with the language difficulties. So it was that sort of uh, environment of, of love that we just had. So that, that, that was at the community side and, of course, they then had their work side. How active were you at school outside of class? Outside of class, very active. <laughs> <laughs> I was not the academic at school, that's for sure. I was definitely a late bloomer, very late bloomer. But uh, in terms of school, I, I loved it. I mean, I was popular at school. I, I was in the school plays. I was in cadets. I was in the school band. Uh, I got fully involved in everything at school that you could get involved with, and I enjoyed it. What was going on for you under the surface? Look, under it... Uh, I suffered from um, uh, depression um, from a young age. I didn't know what it was. It certainly didn't have the multitude of labels that are assigned to it today. But I knew that there was something uh, in me that was that didn't feel right. And I had a great doctor, Dr. Mark Sachs. His brother Oliver Sachs is well known and has had movies written about him. Um, Mark Sachs uh, uh, really introduced me to uh, mental health uh, support, particularly with through medication. And I said, oh, I don't want to have medication at such a young age. And he said, Greg, it's the same as if you break your leg, you need crutches for a period of time to get you back up again, and you'll soon walk without them. Take the medication on the same basis. And I never forgot that. That would have been when I was 13. We're talking a long time ago now, um, 44 years ago, if my maths is correct. And and I took that advice and it was correct advice. And so over the years when I have felt that I needed that crutch mentally, I haven't hesitated in, in, in accepting it. How did you know something wasn't right, as you said? It was periods of um, introspection, of really not being able to feel I could express myself uh, openly or honestly to anybody uh, for fear of judgment um, I think when I was very young, I didn't know exactly why I was feeling that way. I just knew that I was feeling that way. And that in itself was probably a reason I didn't speak up because I didn't know what I was speaking up about. As I got older and I started to realise that it probably was relating to uh, my identity and my sexuality, um, it became evident that that was what I was not prepared to speak up about. That's what I feared speaking about. That's what I feared being judged on. And as a result, I, I went inside myself and I had a lot of internal trauma. And so even when I went to the doctor that I just described, I, I, I don't recall being completely honest as to why I was feeling that way, again, for fear of, of uh, what the response would be. When did you recognise that you might be gay? Oh, young. Uh, I, I could say even my first thought was probably even in primary school. When I acted on it was later, um, obviously. But I always knew that I was attracted to the same sex. Back then I wouldn't have had a clue what that meant. Certainly knew nothing of any labels that I was later to learn about. I just knew that I was different. Apart from your doctor's support, where else did you go to find a sense of belonging? So in my mid-teens... Um, I found the Albury Hotel and I found it because I probably on one of the journeys back from the synagogue on a Saturday and saw people, you know, because people would start going there from lunchtime on. And I went there uh, when I was, as I said, in my mid-teens and I met a community and my eyes opened up. Uh, it was multi-generational. So people my age, 
people who seemed really old, who were probably 30 or 40, and people who were ancient, probably 60 or 70, all in the same environment. On one side, there was a great great big grand piano with people uh, playing the piano and singing. And then around the other side was, you know, shirts off, people dancing on the bars, drag shows and everything. And my eyes just opened. And I'll never forget one of the first times, if not the first time that I was there, that a man, he would have been around 30 or 40, spoke to me said, and asked, you know, was I okay? And was I having a good time? And I said, yes. And I, and, um, I said, I'm a little bit nervous, but I, I just feel like I'm really comfortable here. And he said, just know that you are okay here and you're welcome and take your time. And he just gave me some really kind words that I hope that I've expressed to others who are also going through that sort of realisation period. Paint a picture for us. What were the songs that were being sung? What was that vibe like then? Show tunes. I have to say show tunes wouldn't have mattered if it was on the piano side or the other side, either show tunes or anthems. Gays love an anthem. Gays love an ABBA song, right, Uh, or a Shirley Bassey around the um, piano. It just sort of brought you into this wonderful feeling of warmth and inclusion and non-judgment and everything that you could just open up and be yourself. And that's where I realised, hang on a moment, there is a place for me and I do now understand what I have been going through up to that point. What was your first school holiday job that you had? I was so fortunate. My father uh, was always in merchant banking and he was working for a company that had within it um, a futures exchange. And I was given the opportunity to be on the phone, which meant I got to take the orders from the brokers who were on the phone and transferred the order as you did in the old days on the phones by ringing downstairs to the exchange, passing the orders on, then getting the confirmation that the order had been fulfilled and passing that back. That was my job. I was literally like um, a telephone receptionist, but but a glorified one. And I was paid big money then. Uh, it was, it, it, from memory, it was like $50 an hour. It was huge. I was 16. And it was unheard of. All of my friends were earning around $4 an hour. And because people back then at that time were making huge amounts of money and everybody was paid well. That's what I sort of got to as my first job. And I'll, and I'll never forget the excitement of that. Did you get dressed up for the job? I did. I did. It was, well, firstly, it was essential because it was in the city. And my family was, you could never go to the city unless you were in a suit. Back in those days, uh, you, you would not go past a certain line without being appropriately dressed. And that had to be in a suit and tie. So yes, I did. And I loved it. I, I, I loved that feeling of being in a suit and going along. You feel that the sense of, of power and placement and everything at that time. I loved it. How would you describe that sense of power at the time? Probably a little bit ill-fitting because I was a junior. Uh, It was just that I I was earning a lot of money and so it made me feel excited and powerful. But, of course, I was just a kid being given a great opportunity because of my dad. (laughs) Did you get that sense then that business was your thing? I did. Um, I'll be honest. I really wanted in life to be either a pilot or to be um, or to work in the hospitality world as a hotel manager. That's where I, what I really wanted to do. But my uh, father was in business and it was very much at that time I was uh, I listened to dad every single day, listened to him about his business, about properties that he was managing or, or, or developing or whatever. And that excited me. And uh, the support that I had at home 
was for a certain direction and it certainly wasn't being a pilot. Why not? Because a good Jewish boy doesn't go flying on a Friday night. They should be at home after having a good solid week at work in a suit and tie and earning a good living. Describe the family life you imagined for yourself at that time. I wanted the life that I had seen, the life that I'd experienced. I wanted to bring that into the next generation. I had a family life that accorded with my schooling life in terms of uh, Jewish education and so on, um, albeit or within a secular environment. And I wanted that too. I wanted I wanted the white picket fence. I wanted the, the two children and the dog. I, wa- I wanted the Friday nights at home, the kosher home and everything. I wanted it because I had so much joy in it and I wanted to pass that on. But hang on, at the same time you were having these wonderful experiences at the Albury, how would marriage to a woman work with that? Back then, the expectation was that I would get married. My own personal expectation was that I would get married. Um, So even though other things were going on in my mind, I truly wanted to set those aside and have that life that I had envisaged. During this period, you went on a skiing holiday with friends and one day you had a headache. What happened then? I had my head in my lap and suddenly this girl says to me, what's wrong? And I looked up and I said, look, I've just got this shocking headache. And so she put her hands on my temples and rubbed them and I looked up and I said, oh, it's magically better. And she said, well, that's my magical fingers. And her (laughs) name was Michelle and from there on we became great buddies. You had that instant connection. What did you love about Michelle? Uh, She was vivacious, exciting, driven. She was very family-oriented from a Hungarian-Jewish background, which meant there was lots of food, lots of laughter, lots of connection, lots of support, so inclusive. So So meeting Michelle meant being invited into an extension of the life that I had already from with my parents to a further life of just beauty, just beauty, uh, magic, to be able to have that, the privileges I said that I had as a child to, con- to see that that could continue with this woman, Michelle, was just exciting. You fell in love. What did your life look like together? We then got engaged. We, we bought a house together, our first house in Bondi, and we were both hard workers, both driven for the reasons of wanting to build a home. We had our daughter, and I look back on that period. Uh, I'm so humbled by it. I'm humbled that I got to be with a woman as fabulous as Michelle, that she accepted me, and we had such an open, honest relationship on all aspects of my life. There was nothing that she didn't know about, nothing I didn't open up about to her, and that included my desire to be a married man, notwithstanding that I knew that I was gay. During this time, Michelle gave birth to your daughter, Carly. Tell me about that happy time. A happy time is just a great understatement. I mean, elation. The birth of Carly, our daughter, was just such an enormous joy. Both of us love being parents and we loved it then, we love it now. You decided to take a new direction for your work. You started running a restaurant on Oxford Street. Didn't go very well, though. What happened? (laughs) Well, I thought I was into property. I thought maybe I should have some cash flow. I went into three 
uh, restaurants actually and uh, I learned about cash flow. I learned about cash outflow because I had disaster on disaster. It was a great lesson in, in not going and doing something you know nothing about, at least until you've you know, started from the bottom and worked your way up. And so I bought, uh, had a restaurant on Oxford Street uh, called Taylor Square Restaurant, very prominently placed on the corner of Oxford and Flinders Street, had a great view of Mardi Gras and all that sort of stuff. But the rent was enormous, the staffing was enormous, and I really was way out of my depth. So it, was, it, it didn't last too long. Who was the community around you and your business? Well, that was, I was right smack bang in the centre of Gay World. So I guess, you know, the reality is in the restaurant world, you, you work very long hours. Uh, if it's a night time, you finish late at night, then everybody is still wound up. So you go out for a few drinks and the, the places you go out to drink at around that location were all gay. And so more and more I was immersing in the gay community. And of course, that, that impacted my marriage. What did you do then? Well, I realised that, that I had to make a choice, that I was starting to stray and that was not who I am. That's not the person that I am. That's not the person I wanted to be. That's not the person that Michelle bought into. That was not what she deserved. We started with open and honesty and I wanted to make sure we always maintained that. So I had to speak to her and tell her that, that this is where my life is and I can't change it. And we were only 30 at the time, and so I said, well, hopefully we're a third of the way through our life, and so we have a lot of living to do. And and as tough as this is, I have to make this decision now to leave, and I did. 1996, you started a new company uh, that was with a business partner, and it was called The Satellite Group. Started out in property development with a focus on the gay community. Why? Actually, it started off just as a property development company and we built up a few assets. I could have just simply continued that, 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 those developments on and, and made some good money. But I decided that I wanted to do more than just make money. I actually wanted to do it in a way that, that connected in some way to myself and to the community. And the community that I was talking about was the gay community. And back then, I felt that there was a lot of infrastructural um, needs for the community that hopefully I could assist in, in achieving. For example, specific um, aged care facilities. An 80-year-old lesbian who hasn't had children might want a different environment to a standard aged care f- uh, facility or specific health care coming out of HIV AIDS period, better bars, better resorts and so on that could elevate what had was already excellent work, amazing work in, in uh, for, by other people in developing gay and lesbian assets over a period of time. I, I guess I wanted to take it to the next level. So in 1999, I and my business partner decided, well, let's let's make that jump. And we had a, a, a lunch at the end of the a year, even though we were a private company, we had the press there and everything. And I announced that within 12 months, the company would be listed. And uh, within 12 months, the company was listed. And the goal was to, as I say, create the assets for the gay and lesbian community. And you gained a lot of traction in the media. How did that feel? We did. I mean, we were billed as the first pink float in the world. A lot of the community has seen to that point the gay and lesbian community as double income, no kids, high disposable income and so on, and a good group to invest in. So I felt there was a level of validation in what I was aiming to do as my next step business-wise. And what was your aim in buying gay and lesbian newspapers at the time? The 
I'll call them gay newspapers, gay, the, the, or you might say the queer community newspapers, were like little cottage industries all over Australia. And brilliant, don't get me wrong, and, and I say that with uh, all affection, but it meant that each newspaper was going to the same big organisation to get them to advertise in their uh, publication. What I saw was the possibility of actually accumulating them all and gaining a bigger and stronger voice and being able to go to those big organisations and get more money. And also at the time we were moving into the digitalisation of media and I wanted there to be pots of money available to fund that so that the community newspapers didn't fall behind. I'm getting this real sense of pace and momentum. Business is going gangbusters. You list on the stock exchange. It's 1999. What did the world look like to you at this time? It looked looked very exciting. I mean, there was about three and a half thousand shareholders, which meant there was about three and a half thousand people who believed enough in uh, the vision that I'd put forward to join. I remained the biggest shareholder in the company, and most of the other shareholders were relatively small. But there was that buy-in, and it was an, an exciting time of opportunity uh, to do to, to exactly what we said we were going to do: to amalgamate the newspapers and to give them a stronger voice, to seek acquisitions of similar newspapers around the world, which I had been working on, and to seek investment into other markets. So we, I was working at the time in um, Hong Kong and Singapore, which were very much underground in terms of the community, but wanted over time to be able to come up. And, and they were investing with us in order to ultimately achieve that they have a longer sort of view, the Australians. How did you meet celebrity hairdresser Joe Bailey? I was living at the time at the Horizon Apartments in Darlinghurst. I had a birthday party there and one of my guests, a lawyer, I won't name her, brought Joe along as uh, her plus one. And as it happened, Joe lived one floor below me at Horizon. So uh, he came up and we met there. Describe Joe as you remember when you first met Joe. I think Joe has never changed. Larger than life, highly intelligent, great sense of humour, a marketing machine and super talented. And even though we ended up going out together, we did so for about five minutes, as I as we always <laughs> say, because um, we, were not, we were not good partners, but we've always been good friends, even to today, we remain good friends. How did being with him make you feel? On top of the world. I mean, not only was I going gangbusters in business, now all of a sudden I was being introduced to a man who was who had such a great level of excitement and respect in the A-list world and the celebrity world. So I went, it was exciting and I also saw it as opportune with all the media that I was you know, acquiring through the satellite group and so on. I thought this is really exciting and I was meeting wonderful people. And in the A-list world, what were the parties like? Tell me about the secret Darlinghurst Club. <laughs> the secret Darlinghurst Club, Tatler. <laughs> and I think that there'd be a lot of people who might be listening to this who would know exactly what I'm talking about. Tatler was uh, in the cross uh, in Darlinghurst Road opposite the fire station. There was a, a gate at the top and you had to ring the doorbell and they came up and they liked the look of you. Uh, they would open up and let you in. You'd go down the stairs and it was a very cool underground bar uh, which was divided into about three rooms, three small rooms with one bar at one end and the toilets at the other end and lots of activity in between. What type of people were there? 
it was all, look, really interesting people. So obviously you had your celebrities, your A-listers, you had your lawyers, judges, all sorts of different people from all walks of life that when you went into that environment, it was what happened in Tatler, stayed in Tatler. So it was, uh, you know, you, nobody spoke out of school. It was great fun. Everybody, I guess, could let their hair down. Nobody was there to impress the next person because everybody was as well known. Perhaps I was. I was perhaps the only one who was trying to impress others because I wasn't well known. It was just a place of fantasy. Oh, come on, share, share. What would happen? What is this fantasy you speak of? Certainly a lot of drinking and certainly drug taking. If you think of the movies, do those places actually exist? I can tell you that they do. And, you know, it is a highly sexualised, highly exciting, highly provocative environment. How far did you go with your own drug use at the time? Way too far. Um, you know, you hear of the term party drugs, which is something I don't think is helpful, but you do hear of that term party drugs, which generally means it's drugs that you take on a Friday or Saturday night, but otherwise you're highly functional during the week. And I went from that point where I was the same as everybody else to having drugs all the time until I became a drug addict. You're listening to Conversations. Greg, your business was going from strength to strength at this stage. How did you meet Alex Perry? Through Joe uh, at the Mercedes-Benz Fashion Week, so or even perhaps a little bit before that. Alex was and is a fantastic, uh, well-known Australian designer, fashion designer, and um, he and Joe were very good friends. And Joe, of course, was doing hair, so I met him there. You mentioned uh, the 2000 Fashion Week show of Alex. He was a bit short of cash at the time. So how much money did the satellite group loan him? It was $250,000. And at Fashion Week, his show was announced as Alex Perry, sponsored by? Sponsored by Greg Fisher. And how did that end up causing you grief? It was a huge mistake. And I, I own bad decisions and bad decisions or wrong decisions, but I have to say this was a pure mistake. I put my name onto the flyer, which went around you know, a couple of hundred seats around a catwalk, simply because my name at that time was better known by the press than the satellite group's name. And what I wanted to do was to get the satellite group's name attached to the fashion world. And the reason I wanted to do that was the extension of the success that had occurred with the alcohol world, where they were now advertising heavily in the newspapers. I wanted the fashion world to do the same. And the next day in the newspaper, in the, in the Daily Telegraph, I think it was, it said uh, Alex Perry, proudly sponsored by Greg Fisher, managing director of the satellite group. So I achieved what I set out to achieve. However, technically it was wrong because technically I used the satellite group money to promote the Greg Fisher name and it should have said the satellite group. And had I been advised on that, had I asked for advice or that it had been told that, I would have just simply made it the satellite group. It was wrong and I accept it was wrong. And in fact, it's considered a fraud. So a year after you listed the company, you lost your job? Yes, I did. What effect did that have on you? That had a profound effect. My world crashed at a rate that... I look back on it, I think, how do you possibly survive a fall that, that far and that hard? 
And let me say that every answer that I give with respect to that period does not come with self-pity. It comes with responsibility for my own actions. But it was, to answer your question very directly, it was very, very tough. In what way? Well, you know, one day I was uh, the managing director of a publicly listed company with 163 staff around the country with media and property assets, a finance arm, an architectural arm and a sales arm. And the next day I was in the trash. What happened to the 163 staff? Well, when I left, um, when I was ousted from the company by vote of the board, they did a couple of things. The first thing they did was to get an independent accounting group to come in to check that the company was still solvent. The company was deemed as solvent. In fact, at the time that I left, every staff member was paid on time, all the loans were paid on time, the company was still solvent. So they felt that there was the company would do better with another CEO. One of the main reasons being that I could not uh, recover the share price, which was very low, and I couldn't. For whatever reason, lack of confidence in the market, I acknowledge I could not do that. So the company was deemed as solvent, a new CEO was appointed, and the company traded on. The company did not trade well under the new CEO. As a result, the company folded and people lost their jobs. The satellite group you mentioned had also bought these gay and lesbian newspapers. So how did that impact that community when the papers disappeared? That was uh, the tragedy, the fall of the satellite group, was the change to the structure of gay and lesbian media in Australia. And I deeply regretful about that. I think it's something that could have and should have been avoided. There's no point in me going back over history and saying, I said, she said, he said, I have my views, but the result, the net result, regardless of what, how anybody thinks we got there, was that the uh, satellite media group uh, was finished and the publications were then sold back into effectively cottage industries or wound up or regenerated into something new. You mentioned that you felt like trash and all of this that you had built had come crashing down. What happened to your drug taking at that time? So after I got kicked out, all of a sudden uh, I had no reason to get out of bed. Before I would get out of bed and I'd put a suit on and go to work. Now I got out of bed and I looked in the mirror and I thought, well, what am I meant to do now? And I, and I was completely and utterly lost. And a lot of my insecurities came back again. I think a lot of childhood trauma came back again. And I just escaped. I didn't know. I felt like a pariah. What was said about me in the media was tough. I'm not saying it was wrong, but it was, it was tough to read. Uh, I felt that I'd let so many people down. And I just, I, I guess that's self-medicated. I'd already started taking drugs at a party level. And now, well, I didn't have to go to work, so I took drugs. And then the next day I didn't have to go to work and I took drugs. And it just continued to build and build to the point where I'd get out of bed and I turned across, uh, wake, or I wouldn't even say I woke up because I barely slept, but I sort of turned over. The ice pipe would be next to the bed and I'd light it up and get going. And I felt that unless I took drugs, I didn't have a personality and nobody liked me. Your assets were frozen, so how did you make money? So when I was booted out of the company, the ASIC, the Australian Securities Investment Commission, undertook an investigation into the company and part of that was, yes, my assets were frozen. So suddenly I did not have the ability to pay mortgages, car leases and the like 
or even eat. And I was a drug uh, user. So to facilitate all of that, I became a drug dealer. And I wasn't a very good drug dealer because it didn't take me long to get caught. So I bought wholesale and I sold retail. Uh, and that's what uh, a drug dealer does. There's a, there's a level of excitement and, you, and euphoria. Well, you're high yourself. So you, every, firstly, you already have that feeling of invincibility and, and, and exuberance. And uh, you walk into a party or to a place and everybody wants to see you. And you think that's because everyone loves you. It's not. They love what's in your pocket. And uh, what's in your pocket is some drugs which they've been waiting for you to arrive to the party to receive. And when I say you know, I was a drug dealer, I'm not trying to minimise it in any way, but the people I was dealing to were people who were wanting to buy. I wasn't standing on a corner trying to sell you know, drugs to a child as coming out of school, as stereotypically is often the, the vision. It was you know, going to a party and uh, people were there and they bought the drugs that I brought along. In the same way as prior to that, I would have bought, bought the drugs from somebody else coming along. And in some way moving from that feeling of pariah to popular. Yes, to facilitator. So I'd become the facilitator of a great night. So everybody was there, everyone's sort of half enjoying themselves. I come along, everybody has something and suddenly the party's exciting, everybody's loving each other and uh, on it goes. You said you weren't very good as a drug dealer and you were first arrested on drug charges in 2003. You went from being in the media for corporate fraud to being publicly outed as a drug dealer. What was the response from the Jewish community? Shock and um, shame for my family. And, yeah, I think just complete shock. And uh, once people got over the shock, the... The community were terrific to me, but much more so my family. I think my family had enough capital with the community to draw upon and the community came forward almost without exception and were there for my family. How much were you taking in at the time about what was going on? Um, About what was going on in life generally, I would say it was clouded. I knew what was going on in the community, I I heard it, but that doesn't necessarily mean it rested with me because I was coming down from drugs after I got caught. In fact, you were hiding it from people. I was hiding it from everybody. I was lying, I was manipulative, great storyteller, and that is very typical of somebody who is on drugs and doesn't want to admit it. I wish, in hindsight... I had just simply gone to my parents and said, hey, mum and dad, I have got a terrible problem. I have become a drug user, a drug addict. I owe money. I'm in trouble. Can you help me? How did you start taking ice, the drug? I remember that extremely well. Uh, I was at a, a dinner party of some friends down in Double Bay. And up to that point, I'd only ever taken cocaine. And there was somebody who was there from Melbourne. And he said, oh, I'm just going to have a bit of ice. And I said, oh, what's that? And he said, oh, Greg, don't try it because it gives you such an incredible high and you'll never want anything else after that. I said, oh, don't be so silly. Just let me have a try of it. And he could not have been more correct. I had one little uh, smoke of the ice pipe from him and 
bang, that high was like I've never had in my life. And after that, cocaine became really who cares? And I moved on to ice. But he was 100% right. I became an ice addict very quickly. And an ice addict, an ice user is very different to a cocaine user or any other type of drug user. In what way? Uh, it, It is so incredibly addictive and it changes you physically so quickly. You lose weight incredibly quickly. You get sort of spots on your skin. I guess in the past people would say that sort of heroin look. I've never touched heroin in my life, but you know, if you think of what a heroin addict uh, looks like, um, it's very similar. Then, how does it change your demeanour and behaviour? Uh, well, it didn't. For, it, it, if anything, it it elevated it um, because it just gave you such a, a, a self uh, such self confidence. Um, and I truly believe that uh, if I did not have ice. I couldn't get through a day and people would not want to uh, talk to me. They wouldn't be that interested in me. They wouldn't find me funny or anything. So I just kept taking it. You took your daughter on a holiday to Coffs Harbour with your partner at the time, Luke. How were drugs affecting your mindset when you were away? I was was a drug addict then, but I do recall taking significantly less because I did have the responsibility of my daughter. But there were drugs on the premises in Coffs Harbour. paranoid were you on a trip to the big banana? Definitely there was a high level of paranoia and uh, we went in to buy a milkshake and I said to uh, my ex-partner I just need to go outside and have a cigarette and I never smoked in front of my daughter Um, so I went outside and he kept it there and I just felt that I was being watched and then we drove back from the Big Banana back to the resort and once again I just felt that I was being followed. But I didn't know if I was just being paranoid because those particularly ice does make you paranoid. You think you're seeing things, you think you're hearing things. So I didn't know. Well, later on it, it actually proved to be true. The next day I'm swimming in the pool and I get out and I start to peel a mango for my daughter and then all of a sudden I look up and I see three or four people walking towards me and... Uh, Did you know who they were? I, I, th- I thought that I had seen them before, but again, I, I really, it's a very cloudy time. I think so. But certainly when they came up and said, the, uh, the lady introduced herself as detective, whoever she was, and uh, said, asked me the very first thing she said was, Greg, first thing I'm going to do is to ask you to put the knife down because I had a knife to cut the mango. <laughs> So I put the knife down and then they said, look, we're here to conduct a search of your villa and we need you to, we've got some questions that we would like to ask. We'd like to not do it publicly. They, they were very, they were good to me. They didn't uh, handcuff me in front of everybody. They didn't embarrass anybody. We just picked up our things and we went back to, we had a villa at the resort and we went back to there and that's where they conducted an investigation and a search. And how old was Carly, your daughter at the time and what was she doing? Well, she was 11 and she was uh, sitting on the step inside the villa while everything else was going on around her. That would have been so hard. It was a very traumatic time for her and probably my, one of the greatest uh, periods of shame in my life looking back at it and even talking about it now fills me with horror and regret. What emotions were she feeling when she was there? Well, one can only imagine what an 11-year-old would be feeling in such circumstances where they've never been exposed to anything like this before, did not understand why I was being queried, who these people were, why they were going through our things, and then ultimately why I was then taken away. 
And what happened to you? Well, I was arrested and taken straight into custody. You were sentenced to almost eight years in jail, majority for drug trafficking, six months for the corporate fraud. What was surprising to you about jail, Greg? Well, I guess if you think again about what you see in the movies about jail, a lot of it is well depicted. But the first thing that I felt was really being a fish out of water. I had no idea really what to expect or how things worked. I really felt like I'd gone to another planet. I remember going to the first place from um, Coffs Harbour. It was the first jail I was taken to was Grafton Jail. And then I was told to take off my clothes and put on uh, the greens. And I said, I'm fine. I'm very happy in my clothes. And I meant that genuinely. <laughs> and I couldn't understand <laughs> why they the said response the response was, no, well, you're actually required to. And I went, oh, okay. Um, and then, uh, and then, you know, in the cell that night, somebody said, would you like a cup of tea? And I said, I would love a cup of tea, but we don't have any hot water. And they got the, uh, the alfoil from the lid of the food and rolled it up and stuck it in one part into the socket and then the other part into a glass of water and heated up the water for me. And then I was able to have a cup of tea. So initially it was this world of, okay, so people have to be really innovative to get what they want. And that that obviously perpetuated over time, but I had to learn a new language and there's a culture to learn. There's you know, how to look at people but not look at them in the eye, um, how to respond to people so you don't get bashed, how to make friends so that you can survive because you have to make friends. You've got to actually at some point realise that the world that you know, the friends that you know, the family that you know, no longer exist. You have to create new family and friends inside and a new way to actually communicate and survive. And, and I did that over time. You were transferred between different prisons regularly, often without warning for your family and your partner. How did your dad in particular handle that? You are transferred a lot because of a lack of beds in the system and they need to just move people around, constantly shuffling the, the, the chairs or the beds. Um, and yes, it's without warning. Every day I would, would, would be fearful of the keys coming. You'd hear the keys rattling and as, if you get closer and closer to your door, you think, oh, my God, it's today the day. They open the door and they say, Fisher, you're on a truck. You don't know where you're going. You don't know why, but that's, you're just being moved. And they were the worst days because you just settled into one place. One day I had been, I'd, uh, been moved and it was a day that my family was due to visit me at Parkley Jail. And I was on a truck to go down to Cooma. And when they arrived, um, my father said, I'm here to see Greg Fisher. And the response was, well, inmate 378121 has been moved down to Cooma. And my father was so emotional that his son was being referred to by a number and started yelling at the officer. And, of course, I guess they must cop a lot of abuse uh, and, you know, it's not appropriate. And uh, not that Dad was abusive, but he was emotional. And it took my mother and my sister to, to calm him down and get him out. And, and you know, that's the sort of story I look back on and I think it breaks my heart that I caused that sort of pain. How did you leave jail? Um, well, I left jail a changed man. Uh, firstly, from the very first day that I went into jail, the slam of that first cell door turned me from a drug addict to a non-drug addict. I literally, I went through no come down, no issues. From that day on, uh, back in January 2000 and, uh, 
12. I was an addict. The cell door closed and I became a non-addict and I've never touched a drug since. Um, I realised that I would not be welcome necessarily back into the corporate world and I needed to reskill. And while I was in jail, I undertook a new degree, a Bachelor of Human Services majoring in Indigenous Studies. I also, since jail, have uh, done other, other qualifications as well, including becoming a pilot, which was my childhood dream. So there we go. Um, but I realised that my world had changed and I wanted to use my past commercial experience in a different way. I, w- I was leaving at, um, jail at the age of you know, nearly 45. Uh, I'd gone to jail at 35. I'd started my company at the age of 30. I was a kid. Now I was you know, a middle-aged man with a very different view on life. What I wanted was a home, a reasonable income and the ability to, to just do normal things and I've achieved that. You mentioned the role of your dad in your life. Where was the first place your dad took you to when you came in? Uh, he took me to David Jones and I didn't have any clothes. Well, firstly, straight from jail, I went to mum and dad's in Potts Point for uh, lunch and that was a very emotional lunch. And from that, Dad said, right, we're going shopping. You need to have a new wardrobe. And I'll never forget, he said, right, Greg, off you go. There are no limits. And as I'm sitting here talking to you, it's as much as I can do not to, not to cry because there are things in life that happen that deliver such humanity and such humility and that was one of those circumstances. And I went around and I chose a few things. I was utterly overwhelmed by, what, by the amount of clothes and, and, and I thought, I don't need all of this and how do I choose? I didn't know. I hadn't had to choose anything for 10 years. It was all cho- chosen for me. And I remember taking a bunch of clothes into the change room. I dropped them on the floor and I fell on the floor and I just was in tears. I, I, I just did I couldn't do it. I could not do it. I felt utterly, over, utterly overwhelmed by this simple task of going shopping without any restrictions and without any boundaries, just love. And so it was a very beautiful but very difficult moment. Why did your dad choose to take you on that shopping trip, do you think? My parents said to me when I went to jail, Greg, you could have come to us for help and we would have helped you. We're going to see you through this now and we're going to get you to the other side and we're going to re-establish you. If you do it again, you will be on your own. But if you don't do it again, you have all the unconditional love and support that you can imagine and they've been utterly true to their word. And for the last 10 years or so, you've been working in community organisations such as Our Big Kitchen and Thread Together. What are you doing with Sydney's first queer museum now? I was asked to assist about a year ago. Uh, Ian Roberts, who's a good mate of mine, is part of the establishment of the Queer Museum, along with uh, some great people, the Honourable Justice Michael Kirby, Ita Vatros, many others, and I was asked to come in and give some assistance uh, with uh, the establishment of the structures needed to run a charity and then ultimately to run a museum. And that that I had done for the last 10 years with other organisations. So I, I came in as an advisor and then once we got it to a certain point, it was clear that it needed a CEO to actually drive it and they invited me to go come in as an inaugural CEO and we are actually going to open 
uh, in time for World Pride with two venues, one opposite St Vincent's Hospital in, in Green Park called The Grandstand and a, a collaboration with the National Arts School recreating Ward 17 South from St Vincent's Hospital. Tell me about the Ward 17 South exhibition. Sure. As I said, that's a recreation of the actual ward, which was the HIV AIDS ward that was set up at the insistence, as I'm advised, of the Sisters of Charity, um, who went to the orthopaedic people at the time and said, well, you'll need to move out. We need this for people who have got HIV AIDS. And the hospital agreed. And I know these stories from my chairman, David Polson, who was there and is one of the first 400 people diagnosed with HIV AIDS and is still a survivor of it and went through all the trials and everything such that we have the outcomes that we have today. What we are going to be showing is what it actually looked and felt and sounded like. So the actual assets from the, from the ward, the beds, the nurses' station, etc., that where people sat, the old TV and everything, they've still got those. We're going to recreate that. We've undertaken a, a lot of um, interviews of survivors, of politicians of the time, medical people, people of, of religion and so on, who have given of their experience and we're going to be presenting that uh, as well. So it'll be a real immersion into what actually happened during that pandemic. Thinking about the last 20 years or so, do you feel forgiven? Um, not entirely. I feel that uh, there is forever going to be a black cloud over me. And I am saddened by that. And I do feel hurt. I never, ever questioned the length of my sentence or anything like that. And I never questioned that I had done the wrong thing. Uh, I never questioned that I hurt people. And I have forever said sorry. I have said sorry to the community at large by making sure that I came out of jail a better person than I went into jail with more to offer. To offer. And every day I get out of bed and I do my best to prove that. But yet it's not enough. If I was to go for a job and they did a police check, I would not get that job. For me to become a pilot and to get approvals to go behind the airport, you can imagine having been a drug importer, to get that was hugely difficult. Now, I accept that, but uh, even to get a driver's licence, a uh, driver's car insurance at the time, I couldn't get it without my father because I had a criminal record. And there are still people who blame me entirely for what happened with the satellite group that speak about me uh, on social media in ways that I'm told I must ignore, but I can tell you are very hurtful to read. So um, I feel blessed that so many people have given me a second chance, but I also feel the burden of people who think I should never be given a second chance. You're happily married now to your husband, Billy. You're still close with Michelle. What would teenager Greg think of how your life has turned out? Well, I think teenager Greg would look at my life now and say, well done on Billy, he's divine. And uh, well done on keeping Michelle and Carly and your ex-mother-in-law and everybody else in your life. It's good to be an accumulator, not a destroyer. And uh, be proud of yourself. Yeah, and be happy. Thank you so much, Greg. Thank you for having me. My guest today is Greg Fisher, the CEO of Sydney's first queer museum. I'm Lisa Leong. Thanks for listening. 
You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website, abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.